Grace and peace to you from God, our creator, and the risen one, Jesus the Christ. It is very good to be with you on this glorious day, and what amazing music, Linda. Thank you for that. Just watching you do it is just tickles. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for inviting me to be here. When Pastor Melissa um, invited me to come and preach at chapel, what came to my mind um, was life here in the 1970s. Worship was held in the gym, and the office of campus ministry was located across from the gym. It was then in Kramer Court, which is now the Humanities Building. And it was called the Belly of the Whale. I was a regular inhabitant of that good belly, as was my now husband, Reg, husband for 36 years now. In many ways, the, um, that gathering place made a mark on us, gave us wonderful friends. It wasn't called the belly of the whale, I guess, when you guys were there. Too bad, you know. But they had a good name. You called it the... The New Earth, yeah, that's right. I was still here when it was the New Earth, too. But it gave us good friends, but also many other things, not the least of which, and I don't know how many um, people who know me or Reg know this um, little secret, but it was in the belly of the whale that Reg proposed to me. Now, there's got to be some significance to that. If you figure out what it is, let me know. Yeah, yeah, right, right. We did grow very fond of this wooden whale. You need to see it. It's a wonderful. Jerry's let us borrow it. This is Jerry's, but this wonderful wooden whale um, carved by Arnold Slotten, who was a visiting professor. Um, wow. It was named the Belly of the Whale, and when he heard that was the name of the, the um, Office of Campus Ministry, he um, did his work in wood and made this Jonah for the um, office. And it always stood out to us. It's kind of a, to look at it, Jonah is being liberated there. This exuberant liberation um, from the whale was a visible reminder of the victory of being spewed out for God's purposes. I've spoken here at um, CLU several times over the years, including the 1996 winter break lectures as the professional ministry lecture, and I was sharing the podium with um, none other than Jarvis Streeter, who was that year's um, faculty lecturer, university lecturer, and then Phyllis Tribble, who was the visiting professor lecturer that year. And I didn't know it then, but Dr. Tribble had just published a scholarly work on Jonah. She's written on Jonah again in the New Interpreter's Bible. So connections abound with the belly of the whale as we come today full circle and look again at this story in this third week of Easter. Trappist monk Thomas Merton says in his book, The Sign of Jonas, every Christian is signed with the sign of Jonas because we all live by the power of Christ's resurrection. 
As Jonah spent three days in the fish, Jesus even acknowledged before Jonah was spit out, he spent three days in the fish, and Jesus had three days in the tomb. Dr. Tribble's scholarly work on specific words in this story has interested me, particularly the sense of the Hebrew word used for that large fish. It's not a whale at all, uh, many know that, but it's a large female fish, and so the size and the gender connotes a place of womb-like protection and preparation for new life. It's a familiar story, you may all know it, but the threatening storm erupts and Jonah assumes that he's at fault because he's running away from God. And so in this desperate kind of scapegoat style, Jonah is thrown overboard. And all assume he's dead, but God, like God, does some kind of unusual and unexpected out-of-the-box thing and sends a fish big enough to swallow Jonah alive. And the fish then serves as a watery womb, if you will, in which Jonah is born anew. The story draws to mind baptism. It's a story of resurrection hope. The book of Jonah has been called a fable, a myth, a metaphor, all kinds of different categories. I think Catholic priest Gerard Sloan is on to something when he suggests that the great truths about new life are so great that ordinary language is not equal to them. Only metaphor can handle them. Or as my dear friend Jerry wrote, on the inside cover of his gift to us many years ago of the book Watership Down. Some of you probably read Watership Down a long time ago, but inside that he wrote in his handwriting, savor the myths, they are the only real. Well, whether myth or metaphor or fable or whatever categorization, the Jonah story has developed a long and diverse life of its own. Tribble remarks, that the enormous afterlife of Jonah can be found in Jewish and Christian and Islamic and secular art and music and literature, so much so that it defies categorization. And we have it among us with this Hei Ki Chinese artist rendition of the story mm -hmm. and our wooden one and this John August Swanson um, version of in a lithograph of it and the song that we're going to sing in a few moments, another song of Jonah. The story's breadth and intrigue has caught the imagination of people of all ages in all cultures around the world. And I propose this morning that it has something to say to us here in 2010 at Cal Lutheran, California Lutheran University. The overall theme, as I understand it, for the chapel this year has been that of being planted. It's focused on how CLU is connected to God in the earth of this community and how this community is purposefully planted for lives honoring God and benefiting the world. This is a vocational theme 
Universities are by nature engaged in vocational discernment. Students come here hoping, among other things, to gain perspective on how they can live lives that benefit and bless. Vocational discernment, however, can sometimes be plagued with stormy seas. Jonah's not the only one tempted to run in opposite directions. Storms may feel especially imminent as a school year comes to close, as this one soon will, with job markets um, being less than we might hope and economies speaking of things like scarcities. The challenge is that our best theological thinking happens not when we're buried by scarcity thinking, scarcity of jobs, scarcity of resources, scarcity of opportunity. Restrict, restricted thinking shuts down imagination. It cripples hope, and it argues against risk-taking. And the problem with that is that risk-taking, hopeful imagination is what true vocational discernment asks of us. Frederick Beekner is known for his defining of vocation as that opportunity to match our dear gladness with the world's great need. An urgency emerges, however, when we have no idea what our dear gladness is. When we run from opportunities to come to know our deepest true selves, then the world's great needs can overwhelm rather than inspire creative and helpful response. If we don't know ourselves well and our gifts and dear gladness, then we can become afraid that too much will be asked of us and we'll have no idea how to respond, let alone have the energy for it. How much better it is when we arrive at that place of self-knowledge where we can celebrate in amazement that we have been divinely gifted with the capacity to make meaningful differences in the world. How good it is when we have come to trust that we are, we are in a process always of being planted in community with lives that honor God and benefit the world. And this is baptismal resurrection living at its best. So I love that word planted wherever you came up with that. Good thinking, it's a rich, lovely word in the theme that shaped this year's chapel life. And to be planted is to know ourselves as placed somewhere in the grand scheme of things. Wendell Berry has a great book, says, we have a place on earth. Recognizing our place and planting ourselves there is the work of vocational discernment, the kind of work that university life is so called to. Some flowers bloom best in the shade. Others thrive in full sun. Some may die from too much water, while others thrive in just the most 
watery of all places. Getting to planted lives can honor God, that honor God in the world calls us to know ourselves and God. Self-awareness, it has a role. Merton's book, No Man is an Island, devotes a whole chapter to vocation. It's chapter eight, and I know that because I practically memorized that chapter back when I was a student here. Several phrases stayed with me all these years, and one of those is that he says our vocation is simultaneously God's will and ours, and that God moves us to choose it for ourselves. During my years as a student here at CLU, a whole new world opened up for me and that the Lutheran Church decided to open ordained ministry to women. Prior to that, only men could be ordained in the Lutheran Church. It just wasn't an option for a career. When the rules changed, I wasn't prepared for that. I kind of liked the arrangement the way it was. I didn't fit the mold, and the question came back to me, well, isn't there room for the mold to change? Well, that took some thinking. And campus ministry here at California Lutheran University became a kind of belly or womb of the whale in which I could safely reflect on such new questions that I'd never thought would be possible and could find the support to engage my own doubts and the very clear doubts of others. Getting to risk-taking and hopeful imagination requires both safety and support. Jonah needed a safe place to face himself. Scared of the calling he had received from God, Jonah ran in the opposite direction. But Jonah wasn't afraid that God couldn't do what God wanted to do through him. Jonah was afraid God could accomplish that. That was his fear. Jonah's fears were not fears of failure. They were fears of success. And both happened. If God's purposes were accomplished, what would become of Jonah's worldview? His limited thinking, his exclusive understandings. God's call threatened Jonah out of his comfort zones. He might have to think even differently about he, how he could best be planted for good in the world. A United Methodist pastor serves as a chaplain in a prison um, setting in Colorado, and she often encourages the inmates to speak at the chapel services. One day, one of the inmates explained the problem that many of them were having that led them to being where they were there in prison. And he said that the problem was that the devil realized what it was that God wanted them to do before they realized it. And the devil found a way to divert them. Well, whether we espouse to the devil made me do it, thinking or not, 
It's true that temptations abound to distract us. Sometimes the worst temptations are those that lure us from the work of discovering the dearest gladness that's been imprinted on our beings. The gift of discovering the dear gladness is that it poises us well to take risks in imagining how we have been created for God's purposes. Following God's purposes involves risk-taking because it's not always obvious to us or comfortable to our egos or our fears or the fears of others or our scarcity thinking. Jonah's fears certainly got in his way. But the reason this is an Easter story is that by the end of the story, God has done a mighty good work through Jonah in spite of Jonah's hesitancies. Myth or fable or metaphor or whatever category, Jonah's story is a story of making a difference. At the end of our days, there will be nothing more fulfilling than to know ourselves as mercifully planted to honor God and benefit the world. May the story of Jonah remind us that God's will is always good and that it's okay and even sometimes necessary to hang out in odd places, even like the belly of a whale. It just might change our lives. Amen.